You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Welcome to another episode of Discover Act, brought to you in part by Case IH. I'm your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I'm Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And every week we bring you the top stories in the ag and food space that you need to know. And this week we are discovering the farm on top of Fenway Park, the gross truth about fast food and Harvard's study on diabetes and meat consumption. And at the end of this episode, we have a fabulous interview that we did live on stage in Lubbock, Texas, where we talked with two local producers. Um, one was the owner of a winery slash vineyard and the other one was a local uh, cotton farmer. And so we were bringing some really great conversation about what farmers are actually facing like day to day around sustainability and beyond around economics and uh, workforce. And so many great topics came up in that conversation. Yeah, we alluded to this last week on the podcast, but you and I just absolutely fell in love with the conversation that came out of that panel that we moderated. Sometimes going into panels, you're not sure, you know, where the conversation, the dialogue will go. But I think resoundingly, you and I, as well as the panelists, and then just the whole room were just really happy with the conversation we had on stage. So I know you guys will really enjoy tuning in at the end of this episode. Yeah, so getting into our episode, welcome back, Discovering Discos. We have some really exciting big news to announce today. I honestly cannot believe we're about to say what we're about to say. I feel like I've texted you since we found out and been like, I can't believe this happened. I can't believe this happened. But I kind of can. And so uh, without further ado, we submitted a panel, as you guys know, to South by Southwest, and it was accepted. We discover Ag is headed to South by Southwest. Natalie and I will be on stage. And I just have to start by saying thank you to all of you guys who voted. Like, I probably get kind of emotional, but... When we submitted that panel, I was going through, I text you this, Natalie, like going through all the other panels. And I was like, we have so many shares and so many comments and so many likes, like more than anyone else. And so I just am so thankful for the discos showing up, voting, sharing, leaving comments and supporting us to help us get our panel picked. Yeah, I think you hear creators say this a lot you know, we are nothing without you and thank you for everything you do. Um, But it's moments like these where it's just really solidified. We truly are nothing without our disco community. You guys have built this podcast up with us. um, And now you help get us on a really big stage where we can have honestly a great conversation about food and farming from the perspective of two farmers, two ranchers, um, to an audience that probably doesn't get that very much. And so we're just so grateful from the bottom of our heart that you guys like stepped up, you showed the support that you guys love Discover as much as we do. And like Tara said, we're, we're very emotional. We're very excited. I had tears that day. Um, so I just, I, I cannot say thank you enough. It feels like those are, those words aren't heavy enough to show our gratitude towards you guys. I completely agree. It has been a very surreal week. And the big announcement will actually have came yesterday when this pod comes comes out from South by Southwest. So um, we will be sharing all the details more about it. So stay tuned. Um, If there are any discos in Austin or anyone going to South by Southwest, we'll hope you'll come to our panel and show us some support when that comes around in March. Um, but that's still a few months off. Uh, producer Maddie said she'll be there. So we are actually in our first week of November. And do you know what that means? Happy fall. It's my birthday. It's your birthday. It's your birthday. (laughs) I retract. It took me four seconds longer than I should have. Yes, it's your birthday. 
Happy birthday month to Miss Tara. It's my birthday month. It was Rue's birthday last weekend. It was. We've been on the birthday cake for breakfast train for the last few days, and I'm ready to get off the train. It's not working for me anymore. It's fun the first day after the birthday cake, and by the third day of the kids asking for the leftover cake, it's got to go. I think that's the best thing about birthdays is leftover birthday cake for breakfast. That's what birthdays are all about, in my opinion. It's I love it. So I'm sad that you're already off that train. Not about the celebration of the life and the person, but... <laughs> All right, getting into our episode, we want to start by thanking our sponsor, Case IH. Can Do comes in red. So bailing, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barns, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, ditching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. Let's make this simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmall. And it is Farmall's 100 year. So when we were at the Case IH booth at Farm Progress, we got to celebrate all things Farmall. And some exciting news, Daniel and I will be test driving a 2023 Farmall coming up this December. Um, so we'll be sharing all about Case IH Farmall coming up. That was a mouthful. I'm glad you had that ad, not me. Yeah, it was. It, apparently, the Farmall does it all. It reminded me of like on Dasher, on Dancer. It was like tilly, <laughs> scraping. It was like I'm so not gonna scraping. lie. I I read that um, the script this morning. I was like, ooh, I've got to work up for this. There's a lot <laughs> that I got to list off here for Case. Oh, all right, you guys. Getting into the first article to discover this week. Headline, Farm on Top of Fenway Park Produces Thousands of Pounds of Produce Annually. That's right. You heard us correctly. A farm on Fenway. It's funny that it starts out with that because that is when you sent me this article, I literally was like, a what on top of what? Like I initially thought it was like a billboard about farmers, like on the top of Fenway Park. Like I was so confused and I had to like get in and read the article that was like, no, there is literally a farm producing the produce for the concession stands and the events. And they actually even donate extra food to local, um, like what would it be? Um, I'm trying to think like food banks. Um, so yeah, it was kind of crazy to think that there's a farm on top of the stadium. I know. I'm so bummed. We've missed this. Like where they've been doing this for a decent amount of time. It started in 2015. I'm like, where has the headline been around this? Where's the awareness? This is such a cool thing that Fenway does. Yeah. So for our discos that may not be like sports fans, I did have to Google this. So don't feel bad <laughs> if you didn't know it. But that is the baseball stadium in Boston, which is home of the Red Sox. You're like, that's the game where they run with the ball and they try and <laughs> like, give the wrong sports description. <laughs> I, know, like, I am the first to admit I don't know anything about sports. So I Googled that for anyone else out there. That's the deal. They're growing food on top of the baseball stadium. So as I mentioned, they started in 2015, but further details about the farm itself that produces 7,000 pounds of fresh produce every year. And basically they wanted more um, sustainable local food. The ownership did. So as you mentioned, they are growing this to be used in the concession stands in the ballpark, which is so cool um, for private event catering. Um, the farm operates using a modular system with milk crates that have a special lining inside, organic soil, and then an irrigation system. But one really cool thing they highlighted about the rainwater to grow is that um, they, or sorry, one thing they highlighted about the irrigation system is that they try and use rainwater to grow most of it. And so they only turn on the irrigation system when needed. 
Yeah, it's also a drip irrigation system. So like highly sustainable. I hate using the word sustainable so many yeah. times, but it's just very efficient, uh, really reduces the amount of water used. And they said even this year, with the amount of rain they got naturally, they didn't have to use the drip irrigation a whole lot at all. Like it was just rain and they were able to store up their rainwater for uh, later uses. I also thought it was really cool that they acknowledged that like tens and tens of thousands of people get to walk by and see this farm and realize like it's possible to do this. Like it's you can do this right in your own backyard, right on your rooftop, like right on terraces. And I will say when we were in Chicago last month, um, it was we were in a pretty big high rise. And that was one of the first things when Dan opened the window, he said was, well, look how many farms there are. He, he probably said gardens. Look how many gardens there are on top of roofs. And it was it was like a lot of greenery on top of these roofs, which was super cool to see. Yeah, it is really neat. The other thing that was neat about this article, which you and I say this frequently on the podcast, is we're talking about farming and they mentioned no farmer or they interview no farmer. And they did. They mentioned actually one of the female farmers. Her name was Haley Bird Bergeron. Um, and she works through Green City Growers and they interviewed her about the job and how much she enjoyed it. Um, and just that she said she loved knowing where the food that she was growing is going, which I think is pretty cool from a farmer perspective, because sometimes we do when it enters like that mass supply chain, we kind of lose sight of it. Um, but I thought it was really great that they like searched out, seeked out the farmer and then brought that perspective into the piece. Yeah, her her perspective was really cool because we always talk about people knowing where their food comes from, but like the opposite, like her knowing where her food ends up. Like it was a very unique and interesting perspective because like as you alluded, like we don't always know where our product goes once it enters like the supply chain, right? It could go anywhere. Uh, and so to be able to see like people enjoying, you know, like the fruits of your labor would be really cool. So I have actually toured a larger scale urban farm that was on rooftops. I think it was in Washington, D.C. I was trying to like rack my brain for like when this was or where I was at. But I feel like it was like one of those conventions where you're like you go from the hotel to the airport and back and like but we did do a large scale urban farming and it. I ended up following a lot of like urban farmers on Instagram. Instagram after that. And it's really cool to see, you know, what they do, how they do it, how they tackle their challenges, how they can get food into like food deserts. Um, it's kind of crazy. Instagram, like, do you know how Instagram has like categories you can put your like reel or post into? They actually have an urban farming category, but they don't have a uh, I don't know, a rural farming category or a traditional <laughs> farming category. I feel like I, I kind of feel left out of that. I was going to say, it's cool that they do that, though, because I do feel like that's a part of farming that is often not talked about and are highlighted enough is the urban farming and kind of the challenges they're up against. So I do like that maybe IG is giving them a little boost and help. Yeah. So one of the fun facts actually about like urban gardens, urban farms is they can reduce the urban heat island effect. So when you have so much asphalt, so much concrete in one area, this is really bad. Like in Phoenix, where it gets super hot is it stores so much heat. Whereas if you have a little bit of greenery, like a little bit can go a long way with um, reducing that urban heat island effect. And also them collecting the rainwater um, puts less water going through the storm drains. Uh, so less like you know, less impact, I guess, on their wastewater, like, system, drainage system. Yeah, it makes me wonder, uh, when I was reading this, how well, if none of us knew much about this, I wonder how well they're advertising within the stadium. Like, does the city of Chicago well aware of this? Like, if you tend the game as like the concessions have like, you know, jalapenos grown right here in the stadium. Like, I'm so curious what that marketing looks like, because I feel like they're missing out on a really cool story. 
I know. I was really curious of that too. Like, is it like if you, I don't know what all they grow, but yeah, like if you get a salad, is it like this salad was grown right here in Fenway Park? Like right above second base is where <laughs> your lettuce was grown. Um, this Green City Growers actually has 250 sites around Eastern Massachusetts and 48 of them are in Boston Public Schools. So that was really neat that the schools are getting behind this. I mean, you think about a school and how much rooftop area there is in that or like playground area. And so to be able to get like kids involved in the growing of what's going on in their cafeteria, I loved. So I love this entire company. I'll shout them out again. They're Green City Growers. So definitely a company like check out support if you're in that area. I was going to say Boston is definitely doing the most for Boston. And I just love that because another part like portion going back to like the sustainability conversation, they were talking about how, you know, by implementing this on farm, you know, right there on the field, they're knocking off a significant portion of produce being brought from the outside. So they're not, you know, obviously shipping produce thousands of miles and then bringing it into Boston. I love how they're just like, we're going to grow it right here in Boston and feed people right here in Boston. Shout out to Boston. Yeah, there was a quote, it's possible to grow vegetables anywhere. And I thought that was so well, because you do not think about Boston as being a site for growing vegetables. Um, the last thing I'll say is there is actually some USDA funding opportunities to start your own urban garden or urban farm. So if you have interest in your town, in your community um, for doing something like this, there seemed like there was actually some a decent amount of money and some great grants out there. So I was able to find it really easy on the USDA website. So check it out. All right. Our next sponsor we want to thank is Crowd Health. This is a new sponsor for us, but I actually like it feels very personal to me. When we are talking about health insurance, we all know what a disaster it can be, how expensive it can be. Um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, I mean, a lot of people I know are self employed, especially within agriculture. So getting insurance is a big deal for a lot of people, uh, our family included. We have struggled so much over the last several years with getting health insurance that is affordable. So we are bringing on CrowdHealth to talk more about this. CrowdHealth is not insurance. It is insurance done differently, right? We're going to have a few different ads giving information about them as well as doing an interview with them. And I'm really excited to have them come on and actually talk through all these things because... Um, we just know that the bills can be piled up, claims can be denied. There is just so many unbelievable challenges and it's really unacceptable. So if you come on to the Crowd Health team, it is health insurance alternative. And for $175 for an individual or $575 for a family of four, whoa, that is like a huge difference from what I know my family of four is paying. So it's $575 for a family of four. You get access to a community of people who are willing to help out in the event of emergency. You get access to telemedicine visits, discounted prescriptions, and so much more without doctors' networks getting in the way. Again, I think that the, probably the community part of it is one of the best parts of being able to have people to help you, um, being able to actually talk to somebody. Let Crowd Health help you and your healthcare needs. You can get started today for just $99 per month for your first three months if you use the code DISCOVER. Go to joincrowdhealth.com, enter code DISCOVER to, again, get you $99 per month for your first three months. Yeah, when we originally had our first conversation with Crowd Health, I was so excited about this because I do think that this is such a pain point and a heavy pain point on so many minds of farmers and ranchers is health insurance. Like, what do we do? Oftentimes we work off of the ranch or farm just to have health insurance. And so I really love that there's like this new perspective, this maybe new possible opportunity that could fit your family. 
obviously this is a very personal thing. And so we, like Chara said, are bringing them onto the podcast. You guys can really hear a deep conversation about this insurance and see maybe this is the right fit for you. If it is great, I would love to know that we're playing a role in helping alleviate this kind of really big stress, I think, on a lot of farming and ranching families. Yeah, just wrapping that up, CrowdHealth is not insurance, but you can learn more about them at joincrowdhealth.com. All right, getting into our second article to discover this week. Headline, new study reveals gross truth about a fast food staple customers should know. The findings might have consumers rethinking a favorite item at their local drive-thru. As you drink a drink. <laughs> <laughs> For people Amazing. who can't see. I'm just drinking my fast food. Um soda fountain drink and it's amazing and i just want to say that when you put this article in our trello word i felt like it was attacking me and i felt very triggered because if you don't know this about me i am a fast food stand like i can't tell you how much i love fast food judge me that's fine i'm judging myself i'll take it because i will not give up my fast food I will say as I'm drinking this, I feel like the little two characters in um, <laughs> Hercules, whenever Hades is oh, like, yeah. and you come back with merchandise. <laughs> like that. I'm like, oh, I love that part. So I am just saying, I don't care what this article says. I am drinking my McDonald's Coke and there is nothing better. I thought based off our falls ins and outs, you're supposed to be breaking your habit, Miss Tara. I didn't say I wasn't going to eat fast food. If you noticed, that was not one of my fall-ins or fall-outs. No, I thought you were just stopping to drinking pop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's going really well. <laughs> <laughs> it's going really well. <laughs> no, actually, I had not had it all weekend, and then I had it yesterday, and then I was like, I have to get it this morning for this. So okay. I just like took one for the discos for comedic relief. Okay, well, we're here to support you when you need support. Thank you. I appreciate it. Getting to the article, though, this there's a study out that warns about, as we've been alluding to, and as Tara so visibly showed us, the drinks. A study conducted in California published by the International Water Association found that fountain drink dispensers contain an inordinate amount of germs on them. This did not surprise me at all, like thinking, and maybe that's just like my background in like sampling water like that's a huge part of what i did for 10 years was literally just taking samples of water but when you think about those water lines like how often are they being cleaned they're plastic like they're obviously not running like sanitizer through them or a soap or an acid wash or anything and so i just was like i don't know kind of like no surprise no same like once you act, when you see the headline it kind of like you said triggers you and jolts you at first and then you actually start thinking about it or you kind of place yourself like in the fast food situation and you're like yeah this checks out actually <laughs> this makes a lot of sense yeah so 42% of the samples came back positive for coliform bacteria they also found salmonella e coli like lots of not great things um one of the things worth noting is a lot of the um self service machines the restaurant water is just like tap water and it's usually at room temperature, which is like the temperature that is adequate for growth of bad bacteria, right? Like it's not cold. It's it's just harboring like a lot of pathogens. Yeah, you kind of get the EBGBs the more we talk about this. So sorry, you guys. But the machines are also, also perfect breeding ground for bacteria because they contain all that plastic piping. Um, and so you'll get like the biofilms and like the viscous material it can all accumulate to it. And it just, I mean, again, the more you think about it, the more you're like, yes, all of this is a perfect storm for probably breeding ground for bacteria. 
Yeah, and I hate to like be the bearer of bad news, but one thing to think about is this can also be a problem with home water dispensers in your fridge. Like this is just again like me being my like environmental side of things, but all of that plastic piping for your water dispenser, like it's something to think about of making sure you're like replacing those, cleaning those. I mean, it kind of goes into these vending machines that like it's all plastic. It's all behind the containers. You can't visibly see like how clean it is. And so it's just something to definitely like keep in mind and even check within your own home. Well, I sent you that reel a while back now, but it was talking about how even like the Yetis and all of our different cups that we're drinking out are going to be breeding grounds because they do. I was looking at Rue has a little Yeti cup and like the, the top of it has all of these like crevices and like the different areas. And he did have like milk buildup in a little part of it. And I was like, well, we just, what can we drink out of these days anymore? You know, it's like, (laughs) we got to burn the restaurant down, start over. We got to throw everything away. Like it is kind of overwhelming, but if you're not doing a proper job of cleaning everything, which I'm sure some of these fast food restaurants aren't getting the best wipe down at the end of the day or throughout the day, that's what happens. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Taking um like human health risk assessment class in college was one of the most terrifying classes I ever took because this is exactly what we talked about. So my kids, my poor kids, they like don't get straws in their drinks. They get like this stainless steel single bottle that's like no crevices because of that exact reason. Like they can harbor so many different pathogens. But on a happier note, I'm going to totally change things up. And I don't know where you were planning on heading with this. I was going with but- more doomsday. So I <laughs> I'm happy to change. I have some positive news. Um, McDonald's does things totally differently. I don't know if people know this, but there is like a huge thing out there that like McDonald's Coke tastes better. And it's true. It actually does taste better for a lot of different reasons. And that is because of their entire like delivery system. Most companies, most fast food chains deliver all of the Coca-Cola syrup in plastic bags. McDonald's gets their syrup delivered in stainless steel tanks per their agreement with Coca-Cola since 1955. And so the tanks keep the syrup more fresh and keep light away. Um, They also have a water filtration system that is top tier. So the water is actually filtered before it goes through the system. So it guarantees that it's tastes fresh when it goes into the Coke. Uh, They pre-chill all of their syrups and their water to help with um, some of the contaminants that we were talking about. And then finally, their syrup to water ratio is very exact because they actually account for melting ice. So you need to put your cup full of ice when you get McDonald's Coke so that it actually has the right syrup to water ratio. You really are a McDonald's stan. I'm a McDonald's stan. It's you're doing the mostest for McDonald's. I know. I'm like, hello, McDonald's. Can I'm like, Maddie, make a reel out of this. Get McDonald's to sponsor us. I need free McDonald's for life. Pick me. Pick me. Choose me. <laughs> um, it is. This is groundbreaking news we're bringing, though, today. I feel like this is really important information for anyone who consumes fast food. I agree. Did you, at the very beginning of this article, started with like the top 10 fast food chains? Did any of them surprise you? No, not at all. All of the most 10 popular restaurants, you guys, in sales in the U.S. are all fast food restaurants. And that did not shock me at all. Yeah, McDonald's, Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, Taco Bell, Wendy's, Dunkin', Burger King, Subway's, Domino's, Chipotle. And uh, uh, there was some argument about Chipotle not being fast food, that it was fast casual. I was like, oh, it's absolutely fast food. I didn't agree with that. Absolutely. And they have 500 drive throughs now and they're adding 250 more. It is definitely fast food. Domino's kind of surprised me. I guess I just had them in like the pizza category and not necessarily in like the fast food category. 
but I haven't been to a Domino's in a while. So the last thing I'll end on is that reminding you guys that while we're talking about this, it is like take it with a grain of salt. Every restaurant does have like regular health inspections to stay in business. So we don't want to like fear monger you about fast food. But on the same note, I also did do a little bit reading about other areas to be on germ alert um, for anyone. <laughs> they talked about menus a lot and how plastic menus are going to be more germy than paper ones, um, especially if they get wet, like plastic can't absorb the water. So it sits there until it evaporates again, like perfect breeding ground for bacteria. Um, touch screens, they recommended like using the line if you're ever in any fast food areas that have like the touch screen option versus in person. Um, the lemon wedges, which I had heard before, like when you're out at a bar should never have like the olives or the cherries there. And they were talking about kind of like food sitting out like that to be wary of the condiments, like salt shakers left on the tables. Um, so again, basically be vigilant, be alert discos. The last thing I'll say is the one area that is actually pretty good (laughs) is the ice cream dispenser. You know how the ice cream, are you laughing at me? I just like need to bring the good news while Natalie brings the doom and gloom. Um, The ice cream dispensers, you know how there's like a running joke that ice cream dispensers are always broken at fast food places. It's because if it breaks, it has to like go through like a whole cleaning process. There's a lot to ice cream machines. And so when they go down, that's why they go down for a while. But they have to be like vigilantly cleaned and inspected. And it's kind of crazy. It's like an actual problem of making sure those are up and running because like if they go down... They're down for the count. Some ice cream, you guys, and watch the Red Sox, knowing you're doing the most. <laughs> I would have loved if you would have said the wrong color, like if you had been like yeah. the White Sox. You did say Chicago at one point, and it was supposed to be Boston, oh, yeah, was- but I don't want to correct you. <laughs> okay, but before our last article, we are thanking American Farm Bureau Federation. This year is the 2024, actually, technically it's next year in January, but the 2024 American Farm Bureau Convention. Come and explore some of agriculture's new frontiers and learn from experts who are helping to blaze the trail. It is going to be January 19th through the 24th, 2024 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Do not miss inspiring keynotes and engaging industry issues presented by ag experts from across the country. Workshops are also exclusive to convention attendees, so register today to secure your spot in the audience. This will actually be my third year attending the American Farm Bureau Federation convention. I went to the one in Atlanta. Um, I've been to the one in Puerto Rico and then this one now in Salt Lake City. So every year they pick a different location. I will say like we are going from the warm beaches of Puerto Rico to the cold snowy mountaintops of Salt Lake City. But last year, Natalie and I actually came, uh, went to the Puerto Rico one and we brought our families. It was such a great family event. We are recorded a podcast live on stage. It was our first time doing that. And we are going to be doing that again. We're going to be recording another uh, podcast episode live on stage at American Farm Bureau, as well as doing a few of the breakout workshops. And so I'm really excited. I Salt Lake City is a very different vibe than Puerto Rico, but I kind of love that they like change it up so much. I am very excited. Um, I love conference energy. I love attending conferences. And like you said, this was a really great one that we got to bring our families to last year. And I do think American Farm Bureau does a really great job of like offering vast, you know, topics, information. And so very excited to be in the lineup again for 2024. And hopefully we'll see a lot of you guys there. If you could pick a conference to go to this year, we would highly recommend kicking off 2024 with this one in Salt Lake with us and with the whole American Farm Bureau family. 
Yeah, we will link it in the show notes for you to register. When you register, if you use the code DISCOVER, you will get some really good um, merchandise and some fun things at the registration desk when you get there. So if you are registering, please use the code DISCOVER so that we they know that we sent you and so you can get some really great free merch. All right, getting into our last and final article to discover this week. Headline, your diabetes risk may double if you eat this food twice a week, says Harvard researchers. A new study followed the health and diets of over 260,000 adults across 30 plus years and found that just two servings of red meat per week can increase the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. All right, let's get into it. This one I feel like it's a big one. I feel like we have been seeing this one all over the headlines. It feels like it's everywhere. I don't know if that's just like our bubble we live in, but I have been seeing this, I feel like, across different health professionals, um, like fitness people, a lot of the carnivore like movement. So I just it feels like it's everywhere. I do feel it and it is exhausting a little bit for me, you know. I'm not going to lie. I have some bones to pick, though, with this study because and just the overall coverage of it, as we have seen so many times, obviously, a press release was put out about this. And then it was just copy and paste into every single news article. I could not find anything unique, different. I know I wanted to know who funded this. I know a lot of our discos did. I looked for that everywhere. I followed like into every single one of the authors, looked at what their research was. I could not find a lot of the information I was looking for when it came to this article. Even the uh, article about the study itself, so the link to the study itself, I felt was bare minimum bones, nothing. Like I was kind of shocked that that was the reports of the study, the methodology of the study, like we can get into it more, but it just felt very thrown together quick. I don't know. It had such a weird feeling to me, honestly. One thing that was really glaringly obvious was the push towards plant-based repeatedly in every single article was swapping red meat for plant-based proteins uh, reduced the diabetes risk. And I saw that so many times, which was no surprise, but also still frustrating. Well, even the ending of it said, like, in addition to health benefits, swapping red meat for healthy plant protein sources would help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, climate change, and provide other environmental benefits. I mean, it's a very broad statement. It felt like that you just slap a label on at the end of it. I agree. So kind of getting into maybe, I don't want to say debunking because I I don't like that in this case, but a few of the things that I think were errors, especially in the headlines. So less about the study, but more about the headlines was how they presented the data. So they use a lot of percentages and percentages can be uh, problematic at best. You know that they're like, they use the statement, you can be 62% more likely to develop type 2 diabetes than compared to another group. So you see that 62% and really freak out. Um, it's important to like consider relative risk numbers versus absolute risk differences. Those relative risk numbers are going to be what grabs the headlines. That's going to be the percentages. When in reality, the absolute difference of the the absolute risk differences were a fraction of 1%. That's it, a fraction of 1%. So you have 62% out there when in reality, a fraction of 1% is the actual absolute number. To put it simply, it's a mountain out of a molehill. It's like Mount Everest out of like the anthill in my backyard. And this also going to big picture, something we talk about food studies all the time. And again, not to just like critique, 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 but I do think there's a lot of flaws in this. Again, what we're doing, you guys, is correlates correlation, not causation. And that is oftentimes left so heavily out of these conversations when it should be a very big glaring like part of the conversation. 
Yeah. So one of the articles I really liked that went through the study one by one was Zoe Harcomb. Um, so I got some really great information off of there. So uh, we can share that in the Discover Stories if you guys want to check it out. Uh, but she made some really great points, like the number one being that diabetes is a glucose handling issue and meat does not contain glucose. So the fact that there would be like a causation between those two is it doesn't even really make scientific sense. She mentioned that it would be more likely that it would be the buns, the fries, or the soda I'm drinking away on versus the actual like meat in the sandwich or a hamburger or whatever it may be. Yeah, that actually reminds me of I want to take a second and give a shout out to several discos because we put up a reel on Sunday, which we've kind of been doing. And it's been really fun to put up one of our topics ahead of time and get the discos like perspective and weigh in. There's like lots of funny comments. There's lots of very insightful comments to bring to the conversation too. And I think this one is such a perfect example. The discos delivered. So I want to just feature you guys for a second because some of the things you said that um, you just pointed out, a lot of the discos said the same thing. Um, We have Quote, I like to do everything opposite of what the experts say, which that just made me laugh. Um, I've never heard of protein causing insulin resistance to carbohydrates before. Something seems off here. Perfect example of poor research methodology and a sexy headline. That's a very good, very good point. Um, Let's see. How could these even make sense physiologically? Diabetes is all about glucose from your carbohydrate sources, which red meat literally is not. Would like to see what else their diet consists of, which I want to dive into a second. Um, This might be the most ridiculous study result I've ever heard. (laughs) It's just, you guys should take a second and just go scroll through this reel. Um, It's it's a lot of good conversation, a lot of funny comments, and just thank you, Discos. Yeah, on that note that you said you want to dive into, let's do dive into it. They considered lasagna and sandwiches, quote unquote, red meat. So that was one problem. There's a host of problems. And I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to just list them all off. But a few like the people that consumed red meat were more likely to do less exercise, more likely to be smokers. They had a higher BMI. So all of these factors were not considered. This is not a headline. Like in my mind, the headline should have been if you have a higher BMI, you could be at more risk to have diabetes. Instead, they picked out one factor and like ran with that headline. And it was the meat factor instead of like if you smoke you could be at higher risk of diabetes. Again, all of those would also be correlation, not causation. But it was just really like shoddy research, in my opinion. Well, and you talked about this when we were on a podcast the other day, but it's like we would love to start seeing if you really want to do these studies on red meat, like compare it to a steak. Do the studies on steak, a whole protein and actual red meat, because there is differences nutritionally between a steak and a hot dog and deli meat and lasagna, you guys. (laughs) We shouldn't have to point that out to the people conducting these researches. Those should not all be lumped together. And so it's really frustrating when they're lumping them together and then putting the results of them lumped together. Another study that I found very interesting was that red meat consumption actually peaked in the 1970s and has been on the decline since then. And yet diabetes has increased by 120% from 2001 to 2014. So how on earth are we blaming something that we're actually eating less of for something that is increasing? It, It doesn't make any sense. Some other major flaws with this study that I found really interesting were that this study claimed that women consume more red meat than men, which would be 
a first in like the history of histories. Like every study that's been done about like how much meat consumption by gender, men overwhelmingly eat more red meat. So that seems like an odd thing. But I do think that's where it goes into the self-reporting. The way this survey worked was over 36 years. They checked in with people every two to four years and had them fill out a questionnaire about what they ate. I literally can't remember what I ate on Sunday, let alone what I ate four years ago. Like that is very problematic. And I know that's a hard part of food research. Like I understand that across the board, but I just don't know that we can like put out research like this and be like, this is the end all be all when we are asking people to report on something that they ate four years ago. Yeah, I thought the methodology was interesting. And then they did talk about like, quote unquote, limitations of the study. They said that we employed advanced methods to take into account possible errors in reporting dietary intake. But they never at least that I saw explain what that was. And I don't know how you can because you're, you're combing through like they're not conducting a trial or research. You guys, that's not what they're doing. They're combing through just like you said, reported things. So I don't understand how you put in limitations for reviewing that. It was very confusing to me. Again, I know that's what we're working with when it comes to a lot of food studies is like this analyzation method more than like conducting. But there was something again that felt off about this to me with like, I think it was like every two to four years that they had the food food frequency questionnaire. And it just, I don't know. I didn't like this one. Yeah. And I mean, we're obviously going to be biased. Like I, like you're coming to this podcast knowing full and well we're a dairy farmer and a cattle rancher. I will say, though, that it was actually pretty positive for dairy. It said that dairy products drove down the risk by 22%. So if anything, I could be out here being like, oh, well, sorry for you, beef people. Although I know I derive some of my income from beef as well. Um, But I just I feel like it's worth acknowledging our bias and saying that out loud. But I still wanted to I want to bring these facts of where these issues are, because I think a lot of people were looking to discover for us to kind of cover like what some of the errors with this study were. For sure. And I'm glad you said that. But at the end of the day, you and I are neither we would never ignore scientific proof in front of us. Like we would never be that delusional, that delulu to be to to continue with like even though this is like the industry we support like we would absolutely be like yeah there's some interesting things we learned that is like new breaking information that there could be this possibility and we need to like we would absolutely take a scientific source for fact we just what we care about more at the end of the day than like even saying like pro meat conversations is like truth for consumers we you and i will always stand on like presenting the truth so that people can make their informed their own personal informed choice about food and i just think it gets under our skin when things are presented like this because it is swaying results at the end of the day it's persuading perception at the end of the day and that's just really frustrating to me when it's not backed on actual science. If it's backed on actual science, I'll have the honest conversation around it. But until that day, you'll continue to hear me say like, this isn't scientific. We need to like, this isn't, this is a scam. This is a sham. I completely agree. And that's kind of like what I'll end on is that some of the errors with this were so glaringly obvious. Like this one is the last one I'll end with. The characteristics table that was reported um, on the all the food intake had all of the relevant ones except for two that may be very relevant. And that was sugar and grains. They did not put those characteristics in the food table. And you're talking about diabetes and you're not going to talk about sugar and grains. Like, that's the note I want to end on. Like, so take this study with a grain of sugar because they left that off. <laughs> and as always, 
feel free. I mean, we guys, we choose to bring these articles to highlight them where we can't in a lot of time and even within our own expertise, we can't ever get to like every single granular level of them. So feel free to do to your own research and find out what you come with too. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of glaring things that are wrong with this. And to me, it just felt like a poor attempt to try and do what some other studies have like tried and unsuccessfully already attempted. That came out weird, but... All right. Well, if that's all we have to say about that one, I feel like I got my blood pressure going for this morning. I'm good to go now. Um, So we'll wrap up this episode, but stay tuned for our interview after this. Again, this was recorded live on stage. Our two interviewees were amazing. They are hilarious, funny. It is such a great conversation about what is actually going on in uh, around Lubbock, Texas, and even agriculture as a whole. They brought really great perspective to this conversation. So stick around and give that a listen. Hi, everyone. Thank you guys so much for having us. We are so excited to be here sharing with you all today and recording this podcast, as it was mentioned. Before we get started, I do want to thank our sponsors. Thank you to Gould's Water Technology, a brand of Exylum. And a little bit about them. It is one of the world's leading brands in residential and commercial water products. So thank you for sponsoring um, this podcast and this presentation here today. We also want to give a sh- big shout out to Clutch Productions for setting up all of the audio recording. Our special guests are Steve Newsom, a local producer and co-owner of English Newsom Cellars, and Cody Bassett, who is a local cotton producer and chief executive officer of Plains Cotton Growers. So welcome to the conversation. Thank welcome you. thank you welcome to the podcast um before we dive into conversation uh you likely have many friends acquaintances neighbors in the um audience here but for our listeners on this podcast because it will air live on our podcast um in a couple weeks can you please introduce yourselves um briefly share about your guys's story your operation thank you my name's steve newsom uh my history is as a cotton producer here on the texas high plains that's what my dad did that's what my granddad did uh Watch, watched a lot of the things that my dad went through, uh, 70s and 80s, making a, making a comeback, making a full circle back to the, some of the challenges me and Cody have. Uh, so cotton is still our, our main game, our main bread and butter. We started planting grapes about 15 years ago. Uh, ended up partnering with the English family that had bought the former, uh, Caprock, Caprock winery, uh, renamed and rebranded and, uh, really enjoying what we're doing. Uh, You'll hear me mention again, I wish that I had for cotton production the uh, podium that I've been given at English Newsom Cellars for grapes. It's probably the biggest challenge that we have as producers is not having our voice for what we really do. Now, I appreciate y'all being here today. My name is Cody Besant. I have the privilege of serving as the CEO for Plains Cotton Growers. For those that don't know, we're a cotton producer-based organization here in the hub city of Lubbock that represents uh, the, the cotton producer segment, but other uh, seven segments of industry as a conglomerate group uh, across the High Plains and Southern High Plains of Texas on a, a plethora of things, mainly legislative and regulatory issues, um, federally and state, and then also market development and research and development. Um uh, we do have a, a family farming operation east of town that's uh, you know, predominantly operated and, and uh, owned by us, but uh, managed by another uh, set of producers that do a phenomenal job uh, in that facet. Uh, but cotton is a very unique perspective and commodity in this area. Um, I, I want to 
touch on something I was listening to you uh, for a second when you talked about 72% admit to knowing nothing or very little about farming. Um, that's true for today. And I'll kind of make this statement. We can talk about this a little bit more, but I don't necessarily believe that everybody has to know the intricate details about farming, but they need to have an appreciation of where their food and fiber originate from, how it's developed, and the hard work and sweat that goes into that. And with that, they can continue to be a part of the conversation, be a part of the agriculture industry in that facet. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Tara and I both do individual speaking as well. And in one of my presentations, I talk about how oftentimes in the ag industry, we attend conferences and we are told over and over again, more transparency, more transparency. That's what our industry needs. And I think for me, there is a point where I'm not necessarily sure more transparency will fix our issues. I've always said that ag does not have a product problem. We have a marketing problem. I mean, we have figured out a product that every single you know person on this planet needs. Um, and so keeping in mind that I think there are things about our industry that the average everyday consumer, they're, as we've said, three generations move. They're not really equipped to handle all the information and fully, um, and we don't need them, like you said, to fully understand everything that's going on at a granular level on our operation. But as you said, we do need to have that relationship, those trust and some of those bigger connections with them. So I love that viewpoint. Um, to kick this off. <clears throat> So we've mentioned sustainability a couple of different times. Um, and as we all know, that is, uh, you know, our current favorite trending word right now in agriculture, sustainability and regenerative. I feel like you cannot turn a corner and not hear about it. Um, I think it's newer for consumers than it is for producers, right? If I was to have everyone raise their hand, if you were a producer and say, have you been focusing on, you know, sustainability? You would say that we've been doing that for generations. We're just now calling it something different. So I want to table that for a second because while it is something that is absolutely vital, Vital for our industry to focus on. There's a lot of other important things that come with our industry that we also need to focus on. So I think to kick this off, Cody, if you want to answer first, and then Steve, you can follow, I would love to shine a spotlight on some of the other pertinent issues that you're facing right now um, with your respective industries to the agriculture community. Quite a few challenges. Uh, one is something that's completely out of our control, Mother Nature. Um, it has been a, a challenging last couple of years uh, in respect to that, where uh, we've had a, a systemical amount of lack of rainfall, um, really high heat. You know, By example, this year, we had a great planting season going into May. Uh, we had good amount of rain. Everybody was really fired up, um, really, really was excited about the year. And then it just twisted off and it quit raining. And then we had 48, 49 days of well over 100 degree heat um, that really burned up and, and tormented this crop throughout the growing season, not just cotton, but all of the crops throughout this growing region. So it's been tough. It's been challenging. It's had a huge toll on, on producers themselves from a financial standpoint. It's had a huge impact on infrastructure from a lack of volume. Um, so that's one of the nearby things. Um, other things that come into to relation to challenges is, is, and Steve can allude to this too, but um, a rise in input costs is, is taking a big toll on, on the producer based segment and, and in industry as a well. whole. You have inflation. It's having a, a big toll on people right now. And how do we manage and grapple over that and continue to be um, moving forward? Not necessarily um, uh, sustainable. And I'll, 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 we can touch base on that because I have some that. conversation <laughs> on that. Uh, but really, those are some of the nearby challenges. And then having more access to, to greater technology. We are evolving very quickly as an industry and in trying to adapt and ebb and flow and, and meet consumer demands, but also producer-based demands. Um, but, but technology has got to continue to, to keep up and be affordable in that mindset, too. I'm most familiar with, with farming here on the Texas High Plains. And what I can tell you for sure about the producers here is the producers here will be 10 steps ahead of whatever the political or whatever the emotional thing is that's running through the country. 
For example, when drip irrigation hit the Texas High Plains, it cost more to put drip irrigation in than the land was valued at when it came. Yet it went widespread as if, you know, as if we had a foresight of what was what was coming. What that comes down to is our fathers, our grandfathers years ago were doing things that today people consider sustainable and it was just a practice when when you're on the land you don't have the mentality ever of let's pull everything we can pull out of the land for economics. You're looking to the future. You're looking to the next generation. You're looking to how do I leave this land better than I took it. And so I can tell you for sure in the Lubbock area, if we can meet the economic challenges that Cody discussed that we have no control over, you are in good hands with the producers that are here on the Texas High Plains. Yeah, I'll have to second that. I'm sorry, Natalie, Nebraska, but us over <laughs> here are going to be banded together on this one. But we, uh, I remember I was interviewing a Washington state dairy farmer and he was talking about like the resilience of this area. And it wasn't just in dairy. It was, he was talking about that, you know, when times, turn around, we get some rain, like we're going to be so well positioned to be able to have a real impact on things because of that resiliency we've gone through for the last several years. Like we just, we need a little break in the rain, but uh, other things we have that we really set up for ourselves to make sure we can withstand some of these, you know, climate change issues that are facing us, uh, whether that be like drought or other things, which I know we'll get into. Um, so before we do get into that, I want to touch a little bit more on the economics. And this co- uh, question is directed at you, Cody. So when you think about, you know, all of these rural communities and how much they depend on agriculture and how much their economics, I think about our main streets, our car dealerships, all of them, like they suffer when ag suffers. And as, you know, CEO of PCG, territory, you know, covers, I have it here that covers 3.7 million acres. You represent about 65% of Texas's cotton and 25% of the nation's cotton. So at a very like micro level, you know, you're whether that is your communities or going out, whether that's Texas and then going out beyond there into the nation. When the cotton farmers in this area suffer, it has a massive impact that is just rippling effect. What does that look like for you? What are you guys seeing? How are you combating that? What just overall are you seeing out there? Well, great question. From a, from a micro level, that's, that's pretty easy to respond to. Um, and I, I can... Uh, showcase that from a, a story that I, I tell pretty frequently. But uh, my my wife and I were having dinner one night with a, a couple that we never met, sat across from a bar area. We just started talking about what we did. We we work in the cotton industry. They worked in a, a local restaurant business, and they had no idea about production agriculture. Kind of the point of they don't have to necessarily understand the intricates of it, but they have to have an appreciation of it. And they did. And the reason he said that, he said, you know, I fully understand when the ag economy is thriving in this area, be it cotton or other related crops, because my business feels that there is a lot more disposable income here in the local economy that's spread wide, be it at a a restaurant or a car dealership or grocery stores or you name it. He said, but when the ag economy is truly in in peril, he said, my business feels that. I feel that. And so from a micro standpoint, everybody in business here can can systemically feel that just from a local level standpoint. As you get broader, Texas is, is unique in the fact that, so oil and gas is the number one economic driver. Ag is number two in Texas. And so again, kind of back to that overall statement, when the ag economy does well, then Texas really booms and thrives. And we have a lot more disposable income, a lot more revenue that really helps build upon our based economy. Nationwide, we're kind of unique in the fact that cotton specifically, we export about 85% of all production in the U.S. to an overseas market. And so when we have less available amount of supply that has a huge impact on our overall uh, supply and demand chain from a from a global standpoint but from a US standpoint less supply means less less apparel less uh, 
uh, other products that are that are built into the cotton industry. Um, so what that means to the consumer standpoint, just from a simplistic economic standpoint, those products have a tendency to rise in what it costs to you as a consumer. And so um, that's that's the direct impact that most can relate or wrap their mind around with. Yeah, now this is where I get a chance to finally break about Nebraska because you said, you know, agriculture is number two here in the state and I think it's number one in our state. And so, you know, one in four jobs, we rely on that in our state. And so what you said, I just really feel um, and connect to personally. Uh, Steve, this one's for you. You wear many hats, uh, metaphorically, probably not physically. Um, I know as a fifth generation cotton farmer, you can speak to exactly kind of what Cody was just talking about. Um, I think I heard you mention before the conference that you have roots, you know, going all the way back to the Civil War time. So mid 1860s in, in that industry. Um, but what I find really interesting about your perspective is that you also have the viewpoint of producing several other crops and owning a rather successful vineyard that has a full venue space. So um, my question for you is, you know, Cody focused on, you know, the the challenges you guys are seeing, you know, on the f- the f- on the farm, like foot on the ground. Um, but I'd love to hear your perspective of how that is different um, behind the counter. Well, it's uh, I wish I wish every ag producer worldwide, especially in the U.S., especially here in Texas, had the opportunity to share like we get to share at the winery. You know, we I'll jump on I'll I'll tag along with what he said. We we produce the cotton here in the Lubbock region, and for lack of a better term, it falls into a pool. It's picked out strictly on grades. I cannot bring you a T-shirt that most likely had my cotton. I can't bring you a pair of jeans. The intimacy that we get to engage with and our customers here locally through the tasting room and talk about what we do, talk about why it's unique, why are the grapes grown here in the Lubbock area, what's unique about what we do, if you could share that about what you do on your farm and have somebody want to actually reach out for your product, you'd begin to see little micro economies build within for people that are doing certain things. That micro economy would be huge here in the Lubbock area because by and large, the growers here, just like ourselves, are embracing sustainability. It's a catchword, but you don't get that in general agriculture. And there'll be one bad actor somewhere do something wrong and there'll be a broad stroke painted of how that's how ag producers behave. And it is, it couldn't be further from the truth. So I wish that we had this, this venue for the farm that we have with the winery. I think it would make such a big difference and we're extremely grateful for voices like yourselves. We really are. We appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, that's fascinating, that interface that you get that's like built into your business, essentially, where you get to talk about agriculture in a very organic way with people. Like they're asking you, they're sitting down to learn about the wine, and therefore you're able to share with that. You know, I'm sure there's lots of conversations um, that end up around like soil health. And like, who else gets to say that in agriculture that they get to sit over a glass of wine with people and talk about soil health? Like that's a really unique aspect to your business. Um, you both have mentioned, you know, many challenges. I don't think that we can be here in where we're located right now without talking about the water challenges, which you both have highlighted. Um, you know, Cody, you talked about exports. Uh, Natalie and I, we have a docu-series as well called Discover Ag, and our first episode was actually on cotton. And I feel like I was trying to study for weeks and months about cotton, preparing for that. And yet your fact today, I did not have, I didn't know that we exported that much cotton. So very fascinating. Um, Switching gears a little bit more to the sustainability conversation now, 
Steve, one of my favorite lines in your bio that we got emailed beforehand said that you are always open to diversity and never averse to risk. And I just love that so much. Um, and we've already kind of touched on, you know, that you have um, implemented drip irrigation, uh, you know, conservation tillage, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about, um, Cody, you can follow, about kind of, you know, sustainability on the ground for your guys' operations. You get to the point that you you feel like everything you've done, you watch your land's in better shape. You plant cover crops. You look for every single aspect you can look for. Uh, and then oftentimes seems like our bottom line still shrinks and you see growth in the farm. You see different, you know, areas for the size of farms. You know, what, what do we do for this next generation? When I'm looking at these challenges you're referring to, sometimes we, we try to step back and take a, you know, a mile, a mile high vision back and see what, what we need to look at. But at the end of the day, our shadows cast on our farms and we continue to look for new and innovative ways to do things. Yeah. And I would, I would just concur with that. And, and I can talk a little bit more on sustainability, but from Steve generation of mine and even younger generations. He's to, like, yes, I am smarter. <laughs> not, <laughs> not smarter. You'll find that most, most folks probably my age and younger are more risk averse. They, they are more open-minded to take risk um, as compared to the lessons learned from Steve and even, you know, my father and some other guys sitting in this room, they came through a very hard time in the, in the seventies and eighties. And they learned a lot from that, that I was never exposed to. So it's, it's not really fresh in my mind. I've heard stories about it, but I was never exposed to that. Fortunately, um, so that's kind of where some of that kind of plays into. I, I, I got to add one thing real quick. Talk, <laughs> they, they are smarter, but I got a call midsummer from one of my employees. Super good employee, super smart. And any producers in this room, I bet I get a laugh on this one. He called me and he said we had a tower went down on one of our GPS tractors, and he said the tower, the the, the, the computer's not working. I said drive it. <laughs> And there was a long pause, and I thought we'd have to go over and show them how to actually drive that tractor down the road, count X number of rows, just like my dad taught me. You know, that's so they're they're definitely smart, but we hold a few skills. I think they still <laughs> they're older and wiser. That is for sure. <laughs> but from a sustainability standpoint, we've had this conversation for a long time in the ag industry, and we've worked to more sustainable based efforts. What I mean by that is so. There's 30,000 ways to define sustainability. Everybody has their own mindset of that. Um, but sustainability in just kind of a broader base terms in ag is how do we continue to go year in, year out, make better agronomic decisions, and continue to provide food and fiber for, for the world? Um, and that takes innovation over time, which we've done and will continue to do. But time is just kind of the, of the essence that it just it takes a little bit of, of uh, overall longevity to, to build into those practices. There's programs in place today that talk about sustainability. Um, however, they want to define that. That's more kind of consumer or market based driven, I would attest, uh, where people, like you said earlier on, are more in tune or want to know where their food and fiber come from. They want to be educated. And that's great. But does that necessarily need to have the word sustainability tied to it from a marketing campaign standpoint? Um, it's, it's great to talk about. It's certainly entwined in the conversation and it's not going away. We embrace it. Um, but we've been doing sustainability practices for 30, 40, 50 plus years, even from a conservation standpoint. And we hope people recognize that. That's the main thing. That's the hardest point to get across from a consumer-based standpoint is these guys in this room have been doing these practices and being innovative for their own accord, but also for the consumer base accord for forever. Um, all the way back to, to our generations of family. It's just evolved over time. Yeah, I do think that's a piece that's missing from the conversation when consumers are like, well, what are you doing to be more sustainable? And it's like, we've been doing things all along. Like, let's not discount 
all of the different things. I even know a lot of the conversation, um, you know, around like early adopters, like getting them recognition for now the things that are other people are getting paid for or getting carbon credits for all of those pieces of it. Like we need to be able to reflect back and have consumers acknowledge, I think, how well we have done. And that, that doesn't mean that we're stopping. We're continuing to move forward. But there have been some really great stepping stones along the way that have gotten us to where we're at. Um, we just didn't necessarily call them sustainability, as Natalie alluded to. So my next question, you guys kind of um, gave me great segues. Both of you mentioned uh, policy. And then, uh, Cody, you kind of were talking about those social pressures. And so that is a question I have for you. I know when we were visiting um, the cotton producer in California, it was one of the things that he talked about a lot was the policy policy that was being put in place and how it was affecting him, how water rights were affecting him, and how overall just the social pressures of how people perceive agriculture, how they perceive our impact on the environment, how they perceive the water that we're using for our crops. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. And so, you know, we're seeing kind of these as you mentioned, like this marketing tactic around whether it's sustainability, whether it's regenerative, whether it's carbon neutral milk. We've talked about that on the podcast, carbon neutral wine. I mean Everything is labeled somehow as a marketing tactic to appeal to those consumers that are wanting to be more sustainable. How do you feel like these social pressures as well as policy pressure? Because I do think those social pressures carry over into policy very, very quickly um, when we have, you know, influence on our representatives and our senators. How are you guys seeing those things affect your operations? I'm not sure which one of you guys wants to go first. I'm easy. Well, any of you that that listen to many podcasts, et cetera. I'll, I'll get into policy just a second, but the segue into that, monocrop agriculture is almost like a negative buzzword. They want to talk about corn, cotton, soybeans, monocrop agriculture, repeated crop on the same land again and again. My counter to that, having had some experience in other crops, is you don't hear anybody complaining about monocrop agriculture if they're talking about wine grapes, peaches, lemons, oranges, apples. And the exact same treatment of the land, I can assure you, me and Cody, our parents, our neighbors, do a much, much more intensive job of land management with our monocrop agriculture than we do with some of those other ones. And cotton, cotton as a, as a rule, getting into policy, cotton becomes the most overlooked commodity when they're doing policy. It seems to be the one that they can just brush to the side. And if you'll if you'll allow me, I want you to think about this for a minute. First and foremost, there's not a person in this room right now, I challenge you, that isn't touched by cotton this second. Back it up to the way you woke up this morning. You woke up most likely on cotton sheets. You turned over, probably wearing cotton pajamas. Well, put your feet on the <laughs> yeah. Put your feet on the floor. I guarantee you carpet's got at least some cotton fibers in it. When you get into the shower, your shampoo's got cellulose from cotton seed in it. What are you going to reach for when you get out of that shower? You ain't reaching for no nylon towel, I guarantee you. <laughs> You're going to grab a cotton towel. You're going to put cotton back on to some degree, and I can take this on and on and on. I feel like you're a spokesman for cotton. I know. I was like, well, hey, mic drop. <laughs> I'm just going to say amen. <laughs> so I think to kind of wrap this up for our final question, I'd love to um, zoom out here and go big picture and ask you guys um, what you think is one of the driving forces for moving the future forward for sustainability. I mean, you just mentioned, is it policy that we need to be focusing on? We've talked about technology. I know, Cody, you kind of have a thing or two to say about rural broadband. So like, where do you think, um, especially for this region, the South Plains um, region, where do you think it really lies to push sustainability forward from a producer standpoint? 
I'd say one of, one of our limiting factors and how we continue to evolve is how we better manage our water resources. That is a huge limiting factor in our part of the world is because we're, we're very reliant on, on rain fed on rainfall. Uh, but we also utilize groundwater resources and we're, we're, we're very much advanced in that and continue to evolve in advance of that. You know, Steve mentions the, the drip tape technology. That's a, a huge game changer in here for trying to be more efficient and utilizing our resources. But as we continue to evolve, we'll see technology where we rotate and have uh, more sustainability on rain fed acres. Cause we are shifting to that parallel in this area just because of our limited resources. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. I'll I, I tell you what I mentioned, you know, the number of weather challenges we already have. I don't think there's a single grower in our generation, for sure, that doesn't worry about the Ogallala, and it's it's real concerning. I want to I, I want to kick it kind of look at look at it from another from another perspective. The you know I look not only for sustainability but sustainability on farm, but sustainability to me is having a reliable next generation every time to take over agriculture. It's a huge worry for me with the cost of everything from machinery to land, et cetera. You know to sustain what we do. How do we keep that up? And I can I can tell you, I'll argue with you. We'll look at this any way you want to look at it. The one thing that is necessary to keep for the consumers, for the U.S. as a whole, is to keep the farm family owned. Yeah, I mean, we'll second that. We feel very similar in that, that consumers have to have, it goes back to the very first point we made of consumer trust with us, that they have to trust what we're doing and and kind of know who we are. So with that, you both have given us a lot to think about. I think given our audience today a lot to think about. So I just want to thank you, Cody and Steve, for sharing. Um, I hope these conversations, you know, I know we all have a passion for agriculture here, and I hope these conversations carry far beyond this event and make us think kind of outside the box of when we're thinking about agriculture. And I want to give one last thank you also to our sponsor, Gold's Water Technology. Um, thank you for sponsoring this event, as well as Clutch Production for setting up the audio. Thank you all. Thank you all. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.